Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we are joined by Mrs. Erin Valdez. Erin is an Education Policy Director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. She has been passionate about the transformational power of education all her life, having been given the gift of being homeschooled. She taught for over a decade in Austin area schools and served as an assistant principal at a charter school in Louisville. These experiences have given her the opportunity to see firsthand how students can thrive when they have excellent options. Since joining TPPF, Erin uh, has conducted research on career and technical education at the secondary and post-secondary levels, on civics education, and on welfare-to-work programs in Texas. Valdez earned a master's in classics from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a bachelor's in classical studies from Hillsdale College. Erin uh, enjoys cooking, audiobooks, and spending time with her family and her friends and Aaron, I'm so delighted that you're going to join us on Anchored today. Welcome. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you, Soren. Absolutely. We'll have an excellent episode today. Aaron and I are going to talk about classical education, school choice, uh, the importance of history, and civics education, and so much more. Before we get into that, we always start the podcast by talking about our guest's own educational background. I already mentioned in the in the bio that you were homeschooled. Um, was that homeschooling K-12? And what was that experience like? Thank you. So I was uh, homeschooled in the 80s. I was probably one of the first wave of homeschoolers. My folks were uh, charter members of HSLDA uh, back in 1983-1984. Florida at the time didn't really have free and open homeschooling the way that a lot of states now do. So we had to kind of start doing it sub rosa, so to speak. My parents were very courageous in making that choice. Neither of them went to a four-year college, and so they did it out of conviction. They wanted to give their kids the best education they could on the means that they had. And so I give them all the credit in the world for, for my love of learning, for the way they modeled lifelong learning for us and our household. So I was homeschooled from the age of you know five all the way through high school. And that was in Florida, you said, in the 80s. And we're going to talk probably a little bit about Florida and what the education landscape is there right now. But but at the time, what were some of the other options? Did they just have the public school down the street? Was that kind of the only option? Right. So we had public school, we had private school, and then there was this gray zone of homeschooling, mm-hmm. which my parents learned about on Christian radio, essentially. The way that they worked through the system at the time was they worked with a Catholic parish school, which served as an umbrella for a whole bunch of homeschoolers. They provided sort of the network and the the ability to do the compliance with the state while my parents homeschooled us. So it was a very interesting hybrid of a private with a homeschool option. That was a way you could do it without running too much of a risk uh, catching the attention of the child protective services and so forth. But it was still a risk. My parents didn't really want us to go outside during school hours, things of that nature. So I kind of grew up in a, at least the first few years, in a situation where we were very much outsiders. It was a very unusual choice that my parents were making that now has turned into something actually super common. More and more families are making that choice. It's really cool to see as a former homeschooled kid that so many families are benefiting from it now. But it was it was a very kind of weird 
weird thing back in the day. Right. And so much has changed the last 40 years. And, and thanks to the courage of folks like your family and, and of course, HCLDA, um, you know, that have worked so hard. Kids can actually go outside now between <laughs> during school hours and not and not fear. Um, well, fascinating. And so that you mentioned that love of learning. I know you personally, Aaron. You're you're a proponent of classical education. Was that something that you were aware of receiving? Were your parents aware of uh, instructing you in a certain way, or was that just kind of what they considered education? And and how did you learn about this classical stuff? It's funny that you bring that up. I think they just thought of it as just education, period. You should read great books. You know, we had a set of the great books that they probably picked up at a book depot somewhere. And that was something that you could just dip into and read at any time. You could look at the encyclopedias, which used to be a thing. (laughs) That's kind of what we had in our house was a bunch of books. And we were encouraged to read them. And that sounds very simplistic, but it's a great way to get an education. And so that's really, that's really where it all started. When we moved to Texas in the early 90s, homeschooling was a little more mature. At that point, there were homeschool co-ops that had identities and sort of themes and philosophies. At the time, there were a few classical homeschooling groups that were cropping up in, in the Austin area. So by the end of high school, we had been connected with a couple of those. And I'd taken some classes in informal logic, for instance. I was trying to study a little bit of Latin on my own, but there weren't a lot of really good resources for that at the time. So I, when we kind of became more self-conscious and more aware of what classical education was, I, defi- I definitely gravitated towards it. My parents definitely encouraged that direction for us. So Wow. Yeah. And so you end up at my alma mater at Hillsdale, and then go on to get a master's in classical languages. Clearly, you're immersed in all this. So that makes sense to me, given kind of that background. When and how did you become interested in education policy? It goes back to what I said earlier about growing up for those years in Florida. Mm -hmm. Education policy had a direct impact on my family. And my family had to make very brave and self-conscious choices to go against the grain and to try something different and new. That impressed on me how important it was to have the right framework in place from a legal perspective so that families could make those choices without fear and without feeling the social pressure that my family felt, not just the not just the concerns over the legality, but the social pressure to conform and do what was normal and all the worries that came along with, well, they weren't won't learn to read, they won't be socialized, all of those things. So the interest in policy actually just goes back to those formative years when it became very clear to me that all families can make good choices for their children, especially if they're given a situation where the obstacles are removed. Fascinating. So a lot of that, obviously with with homeschooling, you also, I mentioned in the the introduction, you taught, you were an assistant principal in non-traditional schools, some private schools, but also charter schools. Were there times there as well that kind of now informed maybe your passion for this ed policy. Can you point to a few maybe times where education policy maybe negatively impacted the work that you were doing there? When I taught in the private schools, it was pretty easy in general to sort of ignore the policy environment in which you operate because you're a private school. Mm -hmm. Certainly there were compliance things like the fire marshal and things like that, right, that you had to worry about. But in the private school setting, it's a pretty free setting, so to speak. And a lot of the policies are set by the leadership and you, you follow that lead. However, 
one thing that did impress upon me over and over again was this thought in the back of my head, this is the kind of education my parents would have sacrificed everything to give me. And there's no way my parents could have ever afforded to set foot in the door of these schools, right? There were four kids in the family. So and even if they'd wanted to, they couldn't have sent all of us, right? So that was something that kind of always bothered me a little bit that I was I was in this position that I could provide an education to, to students. And I was grateful for that. I was grateful that those schools exist and that those families are part of them. But I also knew, look, we're not serving all families here. We're not even serving families of students that may really want this, but just can't afford it, right? So that, that in the sense that there was some downside, that was the downside in my own head. I had the opportunity to go become a, an assistant headmaster at a charter school. And at that point, it really started to sink in because that was a classical charter school. So what they were trying to do was offer much of the same kind of education that the private schools I'd been at offered, but for free to anybody who could get through the lottery to to get a seat in that school. And so seeing how students from a broad range of backgrounds thrived on classical education, again, just one more point in favor of this is not just for some, it should be something open for all, and that all kids can benefit from this if they're given the opportunity to have that. And so as I as I went through that, it just became more and more of a conviction that I wanted to do something in this space to open up this kind of education and really other kinds of education in general to as many students as, as could uh, take advantage of it. So I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've been talking a lot about school choice, you know, in general on on the Anchored podcast and and have celebrated a lot of of victories in in school choice. And I know that school choice is not necessarily tied to classical education, but there certainly seems to be a connection there. And knowing you, I I know you would say that school choice is the best way to, to make more classical education available to more students. Can you share a little bit both on the research that that you have done on the growth of of classical charters in Texas and maybe beyond? Yeah, so Texas Public Policy Foundation partnered with um, Dr. Albert Chang at the University of Arkansas, who runs the Classical School Lab, which is the only one like it in the country. And this report will be coming out next week. So we'll be highlighting that and sending out links as soon as it's out. But one of the stats that he uh, cite that I think really drives the point home. So Texas doesn't have private school choice. We just, we have charters, right? We're working very hard to change that, but Mm -hmm. right now we have charters. And so if you look at that sector, you know, in the school years that sort of straddled the pandemic, so 2019, 2020, and you look at the, the year following that school year, the charter school sector grew overall in Texas by about 2%, which is more than the national uh, amount. So Texas has a pretty strong charter sector. But the kicker is that the classical charter school sector grew 21% in the same period in one year. So I want to just let that sink in with your listeners, because what that is signaling is unmet demand. (laughs) If you want to just talk in purely economic terms, families desperately want what classical schools are offering and they're fleeing to it at times when maybe they're becoming aware of some of the things that are being taught in their public schools that they don't like because they've got more access to that now during the pandemic. They can see more of that and they don't like what they see. And they're fleeing to something that they feel kind of like my parents intuited that this is the way education used to be. It's what it should be. And that's what they want. 
And so I would just like throw that out there as a really interesting statistic just for Texas. So 2% versus 21%, 21%, that is, that is massive. Well, let's, let's touch on that a little bit. You're, you're mentioning the fleeing from, and obviously the, the curtain was lifted, so to speak, during the pandemic. And a lot of families saw what's, what is being taught. But I think what's sometimes even more shocking to parents is what's being removed, what's not being taught anymore. And I'm sure you saw a recent Wall Street Journal article that talked about test scores for U.S. history and civics indicating that that very few eighth grade students are meeting any kind of proficiency standards. Now, I don't have that data set for classical charter schools, but I assume that's much, much, much different. And so can you speak to that a little bit too, not just what is what is being taught, but also what's being removed and what I think some of these classical schools are trying to recover? Yes. So the NAEP, uh, the nation's report card, that's kind of the more well-known term for it, Mm-hmm. Uh, reading and math and science and history. It tests, it tests a bunch of different subjects. The headline topics are always reading and, and math, as they should be, but it does test these other subject tests, and they don't disaggregate by types of schools, so you're not going to be able to sort of say, well, classical schools are doing better over here versus public, but um, or um, non-traditional. Or, so the bottom line, though, is that it seems very clear that public schools are crowding out other subjects because they're probably putting a lot of emphasis on the class time in the reading and math classes. Now, I say that as someone who doesn't think we should get rid of achievement tests or standardized tests. I say that just as, a, as something to observe and also note that that's probably a misguided assumption. If you read Robert Pondicio's work on this, if you look at going back to the 80s, E.D. Hirsch's research, literacy is gained by context and by reading widely. So it's not just a matter of decoding things. It's a matter of having awareness of what words are referring to, their broader context, their history. And so this, this turn away from things like history and civics and even science to some extent is probably not actually helping the reading scores at all. In fact, the reading scores keep sliding. So I think these are related phenomena, actually. You can you can see this just sort of across the board. So as schools think that they're spending more time teaching students reading and math, what they're probably doing is just spending more time on what they're calling reading strategies, which is really not about literacy. It's about gaming, gaming a system and, and doing it poorly, actually, it turns out. So that's just something to note is that this crowding out is probably not helping with overall student literacy at all. Yeah, and and, and Hirsch's work, uh, even his more recent work, it, it, addressing that, and, and we know all the criticism and trying to make things political. Hirsch is not a conservative. <laughs> I think we can, we can right, and it's just yeah. we're just looking. But 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 one thing, and I'm not trying to be snarky as the guy who works from a test for a testing company, right? But sometimes it's the oh, we don't we don't like the results on those tests, so uh-huh. we should probably not do tests <laughs> instead of. Maybe we should address the issue, the larger issue at hand, that, that, that students are not reading proficiently, not decoding proficiently. Exactly. And, you know, I, th- I think back to my own history and background, you know, in Florida, we, and I can't remember at the time because I was, I was eight, so I don't remember if it was required by the state or just part of the private school that my parents were connected to, but we took achievement tests. We took the Iowa test. We took Stanford. We took these tests. 
periodically. We would go to a church one day. My mom would pack some snacks. We'd take the test in the morning, have some snacks in the afternoon, finish it. And then it was fun. I hate to, I hate to say that it was fun, but it was, a, it was a break from the routine. You got to fill in little bubbles. I don't ever remember it being stressful or traumatic. I remember it as being just routine. And the thing is, my parents treated it that way. It was just something we did. It was informational to give them feedback on what I needed to work on more, where my gaps might be in my education. And that's how they treated it. And I think that's the value of tests. Now, separate question obviously has to do with the relation of assessment to overall school ratings and those sorts of things. But to your point, you know, ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. Ignoring the fact that students are struggling doesn't actually help them learn to read better. So Right. Yeah. yeah. No, well, well, well put. Let's switch gears a little bit. I, I mentioned in the introduction that you've done research on career and, and technical education. And, you know, I think we're living in a time where, you know, the, the value of an education in general is questioned. And, and why should why should kids read Shakespeare? What's the what's the practical purpose? You know, we're not focusing enough on on vocational training and trade schools. I grew up in Germany where we have a tremendous amount of trade schools and opportunities there. What does your research tell you there, the, the, kind of the relationship between some of this vocational training and classical education? Are they mutually exclusive? I don't think they are. I think in the modern mind, they've become separated. And I actually blame the federal government kind of going back to the 20s. They they started to fund vocational education sort of separately than the rest. And that was a kind of a progressive era idea, misguided, as a lot of the progressive era policies were. So let's just start by saying, I don't really believe in a strong separation between the two. I think that you can learn Shakespeare in the morning. You can be proficient in your Latin. You can also learn to fix stuff in the afternoon. And in fact, we need to have both. We're humans. So if the idea is that we're educating the whole human, then a well-rounded education is one in which you, yes, you imbibe from the greatest minds that have ever written or thought. At the same time, you don't ignore the need to be able to do things that will provide value for yourself and others. This is especially true for young men. So the reason I the reason I'm so passionate about this is because we do have a crisis of young men becoming disengaged with education and the workforce. So there were a couple of books that have come out recently really drawing attention to that. One is a book called Men Without Work. And the author of this book, Nick Eberstadt, I actually got to meet him last week and I, I got him to sign my copy. And uh, I asked him if that was a self-conscious reference to men without chests. And it was. And so I just kind of want to let that sink in. Work is important because for most people on a, on a daily basis, it does give us something that makes us step out of ourselves, that makes us think about others, that makes us get out of bed in the morning and not be slothful right? There is a virtue in it. And so I think that's important to, 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 to drive home. Young men in the current educational context are not being served well in a lot of cases by being told to sit still, sit at a desk, you know, sit forward and just not move, right? They're, they're taking a lot of meds. We see this over and over again we are doing a poor job of engaging young men in education and then consequently the workforce. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters for family formation. It matters for the, the social 
the social good. Essentially, if you have a bunch of young men who are opting out of education in the workforce, who are the young women going to marry and have children with? You know, um, this has really, really severe downstream consequences. And so when I say, edu- you know, classical education and vocational shouldn't be separated, that's what I mean. I think we need to see more schools that do Shakespeare in the morning and fix cars in the afternoon or do computer programming in the afternoon or something that engages um, young men in particular, because we are, we're, we're ha- we have a problem here. We have a real problem on our hands. And it, you know, the, the idea of you can't be both, you can't be both practical and, and handy, and also at the same time, be able to appreciate uh, great literature. That's, that's a false dichotomy that is, that comes about from a progressive mindset that separates body and soul. And so I just think we, classical education has, a, has an opportunity to kind of bring those things back together. There's a great book that I highly recommend uh, to your audience, Shop Class as Soulcraft by uh, Matthew Crawford. And in it, he really contemplates, he's, a, he's got a philosophy background, and he contemplates the, um, the role that fixing things and the role that hands-on um, work has on the soul and vice versa. So I think, I think it's an opportunity for the classical education world to kind of really look at what are they doing to um, engage and, and dignify and raise up uh, some of those, those trades and those handicrafts. Oh, interesting, interesting. Mind, body, and spirit. And I know there are some schools and even colleges. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, a college of the Ozarks, Heartwork U, right? I'm thinking St. Constantine School. Um, and then several schools that are combining, you know, kind of this classical education with entrepreneurship, classical yeah. education with business, with being a mechanic. And, and uh, I guess Du Bois comes to mind too. Uh, the, the goal of education is not to make men carpenters, but carpenters men. And maybe we need more plumbers that have read Dostoevsky. <laughs> it's an opportunity for the movement. I think it is. And again, it's not to say that classical education is has anything wrong with it. It's it's doing amazing things. It's a totally grassroots phenomenon that I think, again, is only going to continue to grow. I think we're only in the very beginning phases of its growth. But at the same time, you know, you really you want to make sure that you're not sort of denigrating or downplaying the role that learning how to fix an air conditioner, for instance, is valuable. And it's a valuable skill because honestly, Maybe maybe you you get a great education K twelve and you don't really want to pursue a four year degree. Well, how are you going to provide for your family, right? How are you going to live a life that has the kind of dignity and the kind of respect that you want to embody and also show to those around you? And so I think I think there there needs to be kind of a balance between everybody needs to go get four years of liberal arts education in college versus hey, what if we do a good job in K twelve? And maybe then more students after they've graduated decide to do something more in the, the, the trade. Yeah, you got me thinking now. One, I, I, I want to read those books, Aaron, but, but also, I guess it's also the way it's presented, right? Is it, well, you know, you're going to learn this because you're going to get something out of it versus we want you to learn some of these things because of what it does to you, how it forms and shapes you. And, and that, I think, is totally congruent with the classical education, right? That formation piece and not just, yeah, you're going to be a mechanic for the rest of your life. Um, exactly right. And that's exactly what Crawford gets at in his his book. It's very well done. And it is, a, it is about that piece of formation. What do you learn when you're fixing something and solving problems and having the satisfaction that comes from making things 
there's something there that's deeply human and that we need to not neglect. Fascinating. I guess the other aspect to this, and I think you've done some some research on that too, is, is just the, the idea that a classical education or humanities-based education is kind of a dead end when it comes to careers. Um, but but I, I remember we had a conversation a few months ago and, and you were actually sharing some things with me that that's not the case, that you know I'm the English major, right? you're the classics major, um, that, that it's not a, a dead end. So for, for the folks that might say, well, now this education sounds good, but I also want to be able to feed my family, what would you tell them? So what's interesting is that if you're in the position of looking at, well, you know, maybe you've got children or nieces and nephews or other folks in your life who are considering going to college, where should I go to college? I would encourage you to not simply shop by brand name. What's interesting is what our research at TPPF shows, Dr. Andrew Gillen on staff has put together an amazing web tool uh, that I'll, that, you know, I can share with you if you'd like the link where you can look up the wages for various programs across the country. And it, and it tells you which ones are doing the best. So let me give you an example. If you wanted to know which college or which institution you were most likely to graduate with an English degree from and also get a good job, this would be the tool to use. <laughs> because not every institution has graduates that are English majors that do very, very well, but some of them do. <laughs> and that might be valuable information for you to know. It speaks to the quality of those programs. It probably indicates that they're rigorous programs. So what you do find in the research is the more rigorous a program it is, the higher the, learn, the, the wages. That, that, should, that should just kind of teach you something. Just because it's, um, just because it's a liberal art doesn't mean it's the, the dead end people think it is. Actually, philosophy majors do pretty well. A lot of them go on to jobs in computer programming or law. Why? Because in philosophy, you, you learn to reason and you learn to reason rigorously. And that is a valuable skill, no matter what your career path is. So I would just encourage people to kind of look deeper than just the brand name and not to assume that just because you have an English major or a philosophy major, that it's a dead end. That's actually not the case. Good. The English major here is, is, is relieved. Let me, let me pick your brain a little bit. You are on the CLT Board of Academic Advisors, and we're super grateful for your support there. We recently had, had a legislative victory in, in Florida and are now kind of on par with SAT, ACT there. But it's also no secret that a lot of universities, you know, even on the state level, are kind of getting rid of standardized testing requirements. What are your thoughts on, on kind of not just in Texas where you are, but, but in general, what do you think the next five to 10 years will bring with respect to standardized testing, in particular when it comes to placement and admissions? This is a great question. I think the Supreme Court is likely to rule in a case they heard this season against affirmative action, both at the University of North Carolina, I believe it was, and Harvard. And what this means is a lot of schools are going to be dropping their standardized test requirements. Now, a lot had been already doing that. That was a trend that was picking up right before the pandemic and then throughout the, the pandemic. So that's not a new trend, but it's going to be accelerated partially because it's harder to prove any kinds of discrimination if you don't have any standardized tests, right? So there's a, there's a little bit of room to maneuver if you don't have those as part of the mix. So that's going to be part of the trend. I do think that some schools are going to go back and try to try to rejigger it. They might try to create their own tests 
They might try multiple different other ways of getting it, whether a student can be successful. They're probably going to be looking more and more at um, high school grades. That's probably going to be a factor that's going to become more salient in Texas. That's a that's something that's important in our top 10% rule, for instance, for admissions. You're going to be seeing a lot of things like the college admissions essay, right? What the research shows is that things like an essay, for instance, is actually more strongly correlated to a student's income than their SAT scores are. So no. uh, standardized tests don't actually correlate as strongly with income as these other softer factors do. And it's just some, something to keep in mind that actually tests can level the playing field quite a bit for students. And that's something to keep in mind. So I think there's going to be a lot of change in this space. Before the SAT and the College Board kind of came along, colleges created their own admissions tests. They created their own standards and they just said, hey, here's our criteria. You know, you read these books, we'll test you on them, we'll see if you're ready. That was kind of the idea. There may be some of that, but I have a feeling that tests like CLT are going to play a big role in that too, because colleges are going to be looking for the kinds of students that can thrive and succeed at their institutions. And CLT is going to help them find those students it already has. Well, thanks for saying that. And it's in, yeah, you're right. It's it's going to be interesting the next few years. And I don't think it's going to end the quote unquote playing the game and trying to play the system, right? And whether it's hiring people to, gosh, we're going to get into JAD GP, GPT and, and all, all those things. And then what when it comes to GPA, right? The how much do AP classes factor into GPA? Do you teach honors? Is it a 4.5 scale? Is it a 4.0 scale? I think ultimately, right, if, if I'm, you know, from a, from a college admissions perspective, I want the kinds of students that I know are one, a good fit and two, can do the work. And and I think it's going to be harder and harder for, for colleges to discern who's able to do this kind of kind of work. And and one quick anecdote, I, I spoke with the with a uh, an English professor at a pretty prestigious uh, university and and he said Soren, you know the last last ten years the the standardized test scores have have gone up uh, and he said you know what else has gone up the number of remedial classes we have to teach because kids don't actually know how to read and write and do their math uh, and so that, that I think that speaks volumes. It, it really does. High school teachers, um, in in some cases, find grading essays one of the hardest things to do, and they should. It is a hard thing to do. And oftentimes they have the same number of students as teachers that teach classes don't, that don't require the same amount of feedback, right, for students. And so from a K-12 perspective, it's something for school leaders to keep in mind. If you really want students that are literate and come out learning how to write compellingly, you need to make sure that your English teaching staff has an, an adequate amount of time to grade and give feedback on essays, because in the absence of that, they'll just stop doing it. And you, you see that happening, right? They're, they're overworked and in many cases have just given up on the whole write an essay and I'll, and I'll give you feedback. So, I, you know, I, I do suspect that there, there are some interventions at the middle school and high school level that would really help with that. But to your point, colleges are struggling with this, this issue. And the K-12 level, and I say that facetiously, but it also creates tension between the math and the English department when they have the same number of tests and one department gets done, you know, probably 10 hours before the other, but that's, <laughs> that's just former English teacher problems, right? Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Aaron, for sharing your thoughts. Of course, we have one last question. As you know, uh, we always ask on the Anchored podcast, which I, I know you expect, um, what is the one book or one text that you can point to that has been most influential or impactful in your life and why? So I was, I was 
struggling a little bit to answer because it's really two. It's the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. And I know that sounds a little bit like I'm an Eeyore. I'm not. When I was a kid and I read Job, I liked it because there were there was a monster in it. And it's a, so it's a great story, right? And so same time as an adult, you appreciate it because it's about the human condition and how little that's changed. And it's about justice and divine justice and what, what that looks like relative to human justice. And Ecclesiastes really gets to that point about, you know, the, the fallenness of human nature, but also the consistency of it. And so, you know, as someone who believes in, you know, an eternal hope, a divine hope, I, I think you really can't appreciate that hope until you've really struggled and grappled with the, uh, the nature of what it means to be human. And I think those two texts help us get there. Beautiful. What a wonderful end way to end the episode. Again, we're here with Aaron Valdez, who is an education policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Aaron, thank you so much for being on Anchor today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.